0: Everybody <clears throat> loves, I think, a good story, right? We love good stories. We, we, we especially like the ones that have a particular arc to how they develop. You know what I'm talking about. There's that standard arc that you can find in all the best stories. It's, it's you know, things are going well. It's sort of like this upward trajectory. And just when you think things are about to get great, something happens. And the bottom falls out or the person gets lost or the 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 love interest is no longer interested whatever it is things are going well something bad happens but just when things get darkest there's that upward turn and everyone's happy in the end it's the typical arc that we see in all good stories and even in bad stories like the ones you see on the Hallmark channel that is essentially the arc of every Hallmark movie you've ever watched they have They've got that formula locked down. Maybe that's why they're so popular. I don't know. But there is something immensely satisfying about resolution to crisis and conflict. You and I in all of life desire, no, I would even say you and I in all of life need happy endings to high drama. We're hardwired for it. When a story or a movie, or a situation in life, ends in the bottom of the ark, there's something that's disrupted within our soul. We're not wired for that. We're wired for, for happy endings. And so this morning, as I seek to have a happy ending to this sermon series we've been working our way through for the last month or so, um, we're going to turn to the back of the Bible. It's the, the, the place in the Bible of, of the ultimate happy endings. We're going to be in that very symbolic Visually symbolic passage there in uh, Revelation chapter five, uh, page nine ninety two. If you have one of the guest Bibles there this morning, Um, and there is no higher drama, nor is there a happier ending than the events depicted there in chapters four and five of Revelation. The story arc that I just articulated is present. You see it right there. In chapter four, things are going are going really well. The, The the trajectory is upward. John the one writing the book of revelation is given this vision he's taken by the spirit to this well to the throne room of heaven and there he sees one sitting on the throne one who is beautiful and majestic and radiant radiant his glory is is evident to see surrounding him we're told are 24 elders that's of course representing the saints of god from the old the 12 from the old and 12 from the new testament representing the whole single complete people of god and as well as these living beings, which are kind of creepy when you read the description, you're kind of like, what's going on there? Basically, they represent all of uh, created, animate life. It's, it's all of creation. The saints and creation surround the throne, and they give the one seated on the throne prayers and praise and glory and honor that, that he is due. And chapter five, which we'll be in just a second, is a, is a seamless continuation of the vision from chapter four. Our Bibles have a, a, a chapter break, but in the original composition, it's one single vision. It's one sort of moment in time that John is able to take all of this in and he records it down for us and the, the arc of the story that's been going up in chapter five, we'll see there's a, there's a turn. Something happens and all seems lost and, and we feel like the story is gonna end on a bad note before then it takes that upward swing again to the ultimate resolution that we, we want and need. Not just for a good story, but for all of life. So turn with me there to Revelation chapter 5. Like I said, page 992, if you have one of these guest Bibles. I'm going to read the whole chapter. Fortunately, it's, for you, it's, it's only 14 verses, so it's not that long. John continues the thought of chapter 4 by saying, Then I saw a scroll, or a book, in the right hand of the one who is sitting on the throne. And there was writing on the inside and on the outside of the scroll, and it was sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel who shouted with a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals on the scroll and open it? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and read it. And then I began to weep bitterly, because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and read it. But one of the 24 elders said to me, "'Stop weeping. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir of David's throne, has won the victory. He is worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb that looked as if it had been slaughtered, and it was now standing between the throne and the four living beings and among the 24 elders.' He had seven horns and seven eyes, which represent the sevenfold spirit of God that is sent out into every part of the earth. He stepped forward and took the scroll from the right hand of the one sitting on the throne. And when he took the scroll, the four living beings and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they held gold bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song with these words, You are worthy. To take the scroll and break its seals and open it. For you were slaughtered, and your blood has ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have caused them to become a kingdom of priests for our God, and they will reign on the earth. And then I looked again, and I heard the voices of thousands and millions of angels around the throne and of the living beings and the elders, and they sang in a mighty chorus. Worthy is the lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, they sang blessing and honor and glory and power belong to the one sitting on the throne and to the lamb forever." And ever. And the four living beings, all of creation, said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshiped the Lamb. Now, in verse 1, the one sitting on the throne is holding a scroll or a book with seven seals. And like everything else here, in this image, and really throughout Revelation, the, the symbol of the book sealed with seven seals is rife with Old Testament allusion, recalling the prophets Ezekiel and Daniel and Isaiah, all of whom talked about books that were sealed. And whenever they talked about books that were sealed, it was always to, with reference to a, a concealed um, revelation about God's coming judgment or redemption. So that's what's in mind with these books of seals. They're, they're God's plans and purposes to carry out uh, the things that he wants to do upon the earth as it pertains to judgment and redemption. And in verse 2, just like in Daniel 4, where uh, s- similar things are taking place, and these are definitely things that John, as he sees them, he's recalling his, his understanding of the Old Testament. Just like in Daniel chapter 4, an angel arrives to pose a question. And the question is this, who is worthy? who is worthy in in all of heaven and earth to receive from the one sitting on the throne the book that contains the concealed revelation of God as it pertains to judgment and revelation who is worthy and able to execute the cosmic plans of the one seated on the throne who is able to break the seals and carry out judgment who is worthy and able to redeem and establish God's people as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation and for a moment, as that story arc has been rising and rising and it's this, this, you feel the momentum of what's happening here and John is seeing amazing things that are about to take place, for a moment, there's a turn. There's a turn. You can't miss it in the text. There in verse three, there's silence. As the question rings out, who is worthy? Who is worthy to take this and do these things? The answer first is no one. There's silence in heaven. Imagine for a moment that there was no hope in life for true justice to take place. Imagine for a moment that you lived in a world where there was no such thing as ultimate peace. Imagine for a moment in a world where truth doesn't ultimately triumph. Or life that ends at death. Now, since you and I have come to Christ, you and I know that we've never lived a second of life in a world like that. You and I know that this world is overseen by one who super, is superintending all of history. And that's really the, the main point out of chapter four the sovereignty of God. He is in control of all creation. He's overseeing what's happening. By his providence, he's carrying out his good and perfect will. And you and I know that, yes, there is injustice in the world, and there's evil in the world, but at the end of time, there will be justice. At the end of time, evil will be vanquished once and forever. Satan Satan and death and Hades and all the wicked will be cast into the, the hell of fire, where there will be eternal consequences. And so you and I know that we, we don't live in a world that doesn't have a satisfying resolution at the end. We don't have to worry about that. I spoke with Janet Spencer this morning. I don't know if you knew or not, but Janet Spencer lost her daughter yesterday. Her daughter passed away. And I called Janet. The first chance I had to, to call her was this morning before I came over here. And we, we talked for about a half hour. And she's heartbroken. She said, parents aren't wired to see their children die. It's one, you know, it's one thing when, when Bill passed away, her husband, she, was at some level, she you know, wasn't entirely prepared for it, but at some level she was prepared for it. She, you know, she, he lived a whole life and she knew he was, was ill and that she, you know, she, her, her days with him were numbered and, and there was a, a certain grief associated with that. But this is a, another type of grief altogether, to, lo- to lose a child. And yet, in the midst of her grief, she has hope. She has hope. Because that's the world that you and I live in, that life for you and for me and those we love who are in Christ, doesn't end at death. So that's, that's the world you and I live in. that there's death, there's pain, there's injustice, but we know the one who's overseeing it all. And we know that no matter how deep the arc of our, lives, the story of our lives goes, there is, there is an upswing to, to wait to, to experience one day. But put yourself in John's shoes for a moment. So John is given this vision. He's seeing all these things that are going on. And as the, it, it's, we're, we're coming to a grand climax of, of what he thinks is going to happen, suddenly he's not so sure. Who, who is worthy? Well, no one is worthy. No one is worthy. And suddenly John is, you almost wonder if he's concerned that maybe God's cosmic plans for judgment and redemption won't come to pass. Maybe there isn't a, a happy ending for, for us all. Maybe, maybe wickedness and darkness has, has a glimmer of hope itself. And so he weeps. He weeps bitterly at the thought. I almost wonder if he recalled his experience on Holy Saturday between the cross and resurrection. There's a, an ark if there ever was one. In fact, the whole life of Christ is marked by the, the, the up and down arcs of salvation and, and what it takes to bring sinful people out of the gutter of sin. And just as Christ is raised up, oh, it's not raised up on a throne, is it? It's raised up on a cross, and suddenly he's in a grave. And, and buried with him were all of his and the rest of the disciples' hopes and dreams and expectations. And I wonder if for a moment... John was triggered by by the memory that that came to his mind as as this proclamation goes out: who is worthy, and no one is there to respond. There's no one worthy until we get to verse 5, where that downward arc then begins to point upward again. There is one who is worthy, after all, to carry out God's plans. There is one who is worthy to inherit a kingdom, there is one who is worthy and able to bring about a satisfying conclusion. Who is it? In verse 5, we have the answer. It is the lion of the tribe of Judah. It is the heir to David's throne. Those are messianic titles from Genesis 49 and Isaiah 11 for a, a figure that would one day arrive that would have the power to affect the plans and purposes of God. And yet, when John looks up, what does he see? He doesn't see a lion. He doesn't even see one that's looking particularly kingly. When I was thinking about th- being John in this moment and looking up and, and seeing what I didn't expect to see, or what he didn't expect to see, I was kind of reminded of my, my wedding day. And I've talked about my wedding day before, and, and this would not be a, uh, an unfamiliar story to you, how I stood at, at the altar, and I was waiting for the bride to arrive. And, and here's, here's the difference between my experience and John's experience. I, I knew exactly what was going to show up in the doors when they opened up. I knew exactly who was there. And, and if there was any surprise, it wasn't that she looked different than what I expected, it's that she looked even better than I expected. The the beauty of my bride as she appeared in the doorway to come, I'll never forget. It was almost 19 years ago. Okay, I always have to double check to make sure I get these numbers right. Almost 19 years ago, and I'll never forget it. It's like it happened yesterday. Now, where I connect that with John's experience is probably what she saw when she looked at me. All right, that's not what I was expecting at all. She probably says that every day when she wakes up. I don't know, but you can ask her sometime. But for John, he's expecting, oh, there's, there's, a, there's a kingly person. There's something regal and majestic. The, the, the hope in this desperate time when all is dark and all is lost, who's going to stand there to triumph and be victorious? Who is worthy? It's not a lion. It's a lamb. And not just any kind of lamb. Lamb. It is a slaughtered lamb. And in a twist of irony, with the aid of the heavenly host's commentary that follows in the verses that come, we discover that through this gory vision, exactly how the line of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne, is able to affect the plans and purposes of God and by what means. If he is worthy, how is he worthy and why? If he can take the scroll and break the seals and carry out God's judgment and redemption upon the earth, how does he do it? And the answer is in the vision the slaughtered lamb. He's the Passover lamb from all the way back in Exodus, by whose blood the faithful are saved. He is Isaiah's sinless, spotless lamb led to slaughter who accomplishes redemption and victory for God's people. His seven eyes and his seven horns signify his omniscient and omnipotent readiness to carry out the plans and purposes of God in the power of the Spirit. This is the one who steps forward to receive authority to rule over the earth and to occupy the seat of honor beside the Father because it is by his death that he is victorious. Now, the Greek for standing slaughtered is interesting. I don't try to impress people with Greek, because frankly, a lot of the Greek I learned, a lot of the tools I learned have gotten rusty. I, I, use, I use what I need, and the rest has gotten rusty. It's kind of like anything we learn in life. We learn the thing in school, <laughs> and then we're really good at it, but then we, the part we use, we're great at, and then the part we don't, it's kind of like, where'd that go? So, I'm not impressing you with my Greek here this morning, but I do want you to know that there is something to be gained from knowing how these words are formed in the original language. The two two words for standing and for slaughtered are in the perfect participle. Meaning what? Well, perfect means there's an ongoing, continuous state. Which means what? What? What does it mean that he continues to stand? What does it mean that he continues in his slaughteredness? What does that say to you and me? Well, first it says that there's an ongoing continuous effect of his redemptive death. You remember Hebrews chapter 10 in verse 12 where the writer says, Our high priest, he's talking about Jesus Christ, our high priest, who's greater than any other high priest there ever was, who stood in a temple day after day, month after month, year after year, offering the same sacrifices over and over and over again that could never take away sins. Our high priest, he says, in verse 12, offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sins, good for all time. Not continual sacrificing. One sacrifice, good for all time. Then he sat down in the place of honor at God's right hand. So when we see slaughtered in the perfect participle, it's not saying he's continuously dying. It's saying he died once and the benefits of his death continue to affect. They're still good. Even though you came to Christ and he forgave you of your sins, he washed you clean by his blood, and you launched into your new life with God, I guarantee you in the story, the arc of your discipleship, there are ups and downs. Now I hope and pray that the overall trajectory is upward. And I believe if you're walking by faith in the Spirit of God, that will be your upward. Your life will mark an upward trajectory. You will grow closer to God and more like God the longer you walk with God. But there will always be ups and downs. And yet, every time our discipleship takes a downward turn, there is one standing slaughtered for you. The benefits of His once for all time sacrifice are still available. And you can turn to Him. And turn to Him and turn to Him again. You'll never exhaust the grace made available for you. Ever. Now, you can turn away from it, you can turn away from His grace, but you can never exhaust it. Five bleeding wounds He bears, we sang last week. Five bleeding wounds He bears received on Calvary, and they pour effectual prayers, he strongly pleads for me. His blood pleads for you, even now, in the direct presence of God. What else does the perfect participle formation of these words tell us here? Well, the image of the slaughtered lamb captures the central theme of Revelation in that, and really of the whole New Testament as a whole. And it is this, that victory comes through sacrifice. He stands slaughtered as a continual reminder that self-giving love is the only way the people of God can ever overcome. And you and I have this tendency to think in the Christian life that he had this sacrifice then and accomplish victory then by giving himself away. But now in our lives now, in order to accomplish anything good for God, it's all about us mustering up the strength. It's up to us to be bold and, and to do the things. It's up to us, by my brute strength and sheer force of will, I will make things happen now. And there's a one standing slaughtered that has something different for you and for me. It's not self-giving love once that brings life. It is self-giving love always. It is always the giving of self away that is life. The saints in heaven, as, as we would see in chapter 14 of Revelation in verse 4, the saints in heaven follow the lamb wherever he goes. Yes, Jesus is the way, and we talked about that a number of weeks ago when we were back in Revela- or I'm sorry, John chapter 14. Jesus is the way. He is the, the means of knowing and coming to the Father, absolutely. But because he is the way, his way is also our way. He's not just something to be used to get somewhere, he is the model of how to get there and the one that gets us there. We follow him. We follow his lead. And it's not just true once, it's true every time. And so, when we see the vision of the one standing slaughtered, we know that we don't ever, ever in life, overcome by killing. Whether, I, I don't actually mean, I mean, you know not to kill people, so... Killing physically, literally, yes, but also the, the, the idea of just conquering another in general. Taking life from it. We don't overcome by doing that. We overcome by how? By dying. We, get, we overcome in this world by giving ourselves away. We don't conquer by taking. It's not the way of Christ. We conquer by what? By giving. The way up to honor is always the way down through humility, every single time. Now, it may not be the case for, you know, your secular relationships. They, they may never honor you. In your humility, you may become, in their eyes, something weak, something to be trampled upon, something to be abused or, or utilized for their own purposes, and that's something that you and I can expect to experience in this broken world that we're in. But in the purposes of God, in the kingdom of God, the way up is always down. That's not true once. No, he, he continues to stand slaughtered. That's always the pattern for you and me. That you and I would be in a continuous state of giving ourselves away for the sake of another. In the mysterious economy of God's kingdom, it is only by death to self, death to my will, death to my way, death to me being number one all the time, me being first, getting what I want, everything's all about me, it is only death to that, that life for another is ever offered. So let that give shape to the decisions you make today. When you're out... In life, and you're faced with all the choices and, and all the various consequences and all the various scenarios and things you find yourself in, whether it's with a friendship or a romantic relationship or a, a, whatever it is, a job situation, let these things give shape and dimension to how you think and how, what your attitude is in the decisions that you make. Am I going to operate according to the principles and the values of this this broken, sinful world, or will I operate according to the principles and the values of the kingdom? And how you choose there will have massive implications for your life, not just today, but for eternity. The way up is always the way down. Where are you in the ark? Where are you right now as you... Think about your own life and the, the things you're going through and the stuff you brought in here this morning. Where are you in that arc? Maybe you're, you're at a high point. Maybe it's the wrong kind of high point. And maybe there's a downward turn that'll bring some reality into your life. Don't, don't shun that. Embrace that. The whole point of Revelation is to give hope to people who will face downturns in life. Maybe you're at the low point. And I want to tell you, God is the king of the high and the low, and he's there with you. He walks with you through the valley, and he will lead you. If you'll follow him, he'll lead you out of the valley. Lastly, that the lamb is standing continuously. Yes, we've, we focused on him being in sort of this slaughteredness state. Uh, that with continuing effect, but that he's standing. Now I know in other places he's seated, and the emphasis there is on his authority. When when one in heaven seats sits and is seated, there is a sort of a finality and a, an authority that is associated with that. But the fact that he's standing. In the midst of all of this activity, he's at the centermost point of all that's going on. He's between the throne and between the elders and the beasts. He's in the midst of it all, and there's so much we we could spend two or three more sermons talking about what this means. But at the very least, know this. The fact that he's at the centermost point of this heavenly scene of worship illustrates the position that he should have in all of our lives today. We tend to make, (laughs) I know you don't do this, I have a tendency to do this. So this is not me accusing you, this is me confessing to you. I have a tendency to make things about me. I know, it's shocking to you. I can never imagine a pastor making things about themselves. It happens. We tend to make things all about ourselves. Even our own understanding and articulation of our new birth salvation experience can become about us, can it? It's amazing how many times I hear Christians give testimonies and it's all about them. My decision to follow Jesus. My choice. I am becoming Jesus' disciple. It's, so many, it's amazing how many times we hear the, the personal pronouns, the you know, first person personal pronouns in our testimonies. As if the testimony is not about what God has done, but about what I have done. We make things about ourselves. But the the lamb standing at the center stage in the, you could argue, the most real place there is in the direct presence of God. The fact that he's standing there tells us that no, it does not revolve around you. It is not about you. Your life, even your salvation, is not about you, it is about him. All of heaven and all of earth, all of creation, all of history, the whole plan of redemption, all the purposes of God, even your own life and born-again experience are about him and not you. And that's essentially what Paul says in Ephesians 2, 7. When he talks about how God raised us to new life in Christ, that we are seated with Christ in his, there's the seated language, we're seated with Christ in his exalted state. He died, he was buried, he rose, he ascended, he is exalted. And you and I, by virtue of our faith and our union with him, are seated with him. And God, say, God says to Paul and then to us, the reason why. Ephesians 2 7, God's purpose is to do what? It is to point to us. Now we're, we're the, the, the sinful, self-centered part of us is like, all right, God's pointing, pointing at me. Why? Why is God pointing at us? God's purpose is to point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of His grace. And kindness toward us, as shown in all He has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. That tells me that you and I were created and have been saved in order to bring glory to God. The whole purpose behind you finding new life in Him is not ultimately about you. It is so that God can brag for eternity about his goodness and his grace and his mercy and his kindness toward you in Christ Jesus. You and I become exhibit A of his glory. Your salvation is not about your individual decision but about God's cosmic size plans from before all time to unite heaven and earth through his son Christ is who it is all about and every created thing finds its ultimate significance in its relation to him your ultimate Significance and value is in Christ. Your identity is in Christ. Your life is in Christ. And all glory in it is his. Every bit of it. And he, the one who occupies the center stage of heaven must therefore also occupy the center stage of your heart. Not just as a Passover lamb who 2,000 years ago did the thing for you. Yes, you need him in your heart as your savior, absolutely. It is only because he did the thing for you that you have any hope of, of, of anything in life. But he needs to be in your heart not just as the Passover lamb who did the thing for you. You need him in your heart as the lion who reigns over you. He's both at once, and the two are always together. He is always Savior and Lord. And if he's not both to you, he is neither to you. And that's the essence of the new song that we're told that breaks out in heaven. We know from the Old Testament that a new song is coming. Here it is. Here's the new song sung by the heavenly hosts, it declares that the basis of Christ's worthiness to be Lord is the selfless giving of his life. Tell me, that doesn't flip the value system of the world upside down. What is the basis on which we determine who is worthy of anything? Well, in heaven, it's not by what you take or what you acquire, it is by what you give. And because he gave it all away, He's worthy to receive it all in return. And your life and my life will never be the same once we finally see with with clarity that heaven and earth bow before holy love. That is what it's all about. That's why everything is here. That's the destiny to where everything is going. The world moves and bows and submits in awe, in awestruck wonder before holy love. You are worthy. Why? Oh, because you gave your life away. That's what they're singing. You are worthy. Why? Because your blood that you freely gave has ransomed people of every shape, size and color from all the corners of the earth, you are worthy because you alone have established God's reign by your obedience not because you were a strong military general who swept in and destroyed all the enemies in one vicious stroke no because you stepped onto the scene though you were God, you emptied yourself of your godlet of your your rights as God and you became like us and you went to, to death even death on a cross and gave all of your life away and by your obedience you have established God's reign you have established the kingdom of God in the hearts of a holy priestly people who offer pleasing spiritual sacrifices It is because of who Christ uniquely is and has done that he alone is worthy to receive, well, power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And guess what? One day, even his own enemies will recognize it. If you came in here this morning and you are not a Christian, you are welcome here, by the way. But I hope you feel welcome. I hope you sense the hospitality of, of God Himself through this people. This people is a loving, a genuinely loving church. And I'm not saying it because it somehow looks good for me. I've been the beneficiary of the love of this church, I'm a recipient of it. And so I can, I can go out and tell people hey, we have, a, we have a loving church because I've been loved by them. They know the good and the bad about me, and they love me just the same. And if you are here this morning and you don't know Christ, well, guess what? You are welcome here. You don't have to agree with everything we say. You don't have to sing the songs. You, know, you just sat back there and were skeptical the whole time. I'm glad you're at least here this morning. But don't leave without knowing this. God's word declares that one day every knee will bow. Every knee. And that includes yours What John sees in verse 13, every creature in heaven, on the earth, under the earth, in the sea, and by the way, the sea here is not meaning the ocean, he's not talking about Aquaman, okay, we're talking about the realm of the wicked, even the most wicked in the world, The the farthest from God. In the deepest abyss of darkness, even there, they will bend a knee. And they will join. They will join in the song. Man, I, I don't think it's, that sends chills up my spine. I don't know if it's a good chill or a bad chill. I'll tell you, I want to be on the right side of that equation when the time comes. John's, John's witnessing what Paul's already predicted, and I've half quoted it to you already from Philippians chapter two. Look at it, look at it. If you, I think it's gonna be on the screen for you. What did Paul predict by the, the aid of the Spirit in Philippians two? He, here's the story. All the elements that John is seeing, Paul is talking about here. We have the whole ark. The whole ark is present. Look what he says. Though he was God, that is Jesus Christ, though he was God, he's high, he's God. He is the eternal son of the Father, the word of God, though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges and took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. Boy, that's pretty low. Well, he's not going. It's not low enough to save you. It's not enough that he was born. What else does he have to do to save you? And when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. therefore, because of that, God elevated him to the highest place of honor and gave him the name that is above all other names, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Because of his humility, his self-emptying, his sacrificial giving of life, because he went so low, God has raised him so high. And you and I acknowledge him today, and one day everyone else will too. I hope you don't wait till then to acknowledge him. There is such a deep and satisfying joy to be found in bending my knee willfully as opposed to having it bent for me. Listen, you were created to worship. You were created to worship. It's what you were made for. Not yourself, (laughs) but him. There's nothing more immensely satisfying to your soul than when you find yourself in right relation to the lamb. When you can openly and freely lay prostrate before him, not because you're afraid, but because you're stricken, stricken by his beauty, By his glory, his majesty. When you're blown away at who he is and what he has done for you, when you find yourself in right relation to him him there, oh, there's nothing sweeter in life. There's that sweet spot of the Christian experience when, when all we see is him. And our destiny is that. Take the best moment of your Christian life the sweetest intimacy, the clearest view of God, the the moment where everything felt just right, and then take that moment and and expand it out for the rest of eternity, and you get the tiniest glimpse of what lies in store for you at the end of time. Either way, you're going to (laughs) bow. I hope you start bowing today. Recently, my family and I um, I don't know if I should tell you this. Um, it's okay. It's an okay movie, I think. If you go and check IMDb and say, oh, Pastor Sean, I had this in there. You shouldn't have told us you watched that, then whatever. I'll, I'll be held accountable by you. But we watched Nacho Libre together. I think it's a pretty benign movie. We watched it as a family together, all all five of us. It's silly. It's It's goofy. I find it very funny. I don't know why that type of humor resonates with me, but it does. But in the final act of the film, the movie's antagonist, he's this big burly luchador, which is like a Mexican professional wrestler, this big burly luchador named Ramses is preparing for the big match with the movie's hero, who was this massive underdog. And so you have, you know, Ramses is this like six foot plus, you know, 250 pound massive muscle, and then you have, you know, Nacho, who's like five, six, and probably also 250 pounds and a mass of, well, not muscle, okay? The two could not be more mismatched. And it's kind of funny that they're even going to be in the ring together. But anyway, as Ramses is getting ready for the fight, you see you know the cameras in the locker room, and he's, he's getting his massage, and he's getting wiped down with oil, and he's getting all prepared for the, the cameras and the crowds. And as this is happening, there's a person in there basically steadily praising his superiority. Now, those of you who have seen the movie know where this is going. The whole time that he's getting prepped, the man is saying, Ramses is number one. His arms are number one. His legs are number one. His eyes are number one. Ramses is number 1. Now, I know it's silly. I'm kind of embarrassed even doing this, but I wonder I wonder if somehow thou, somehow that isn't a picture of how our own lives should be marked. Not by the sinful insistence that everything is always about us, that we are never. No, by the steady refrain That in all things, Jesus is number one. In all you say, in all that you do, in all that you are, every second of every day, in every relationship, every venue, every activity, every attitude, In all things, oh, Jesus, you are number one. You are number one. You are number one. You are number one. Is that not what the the, the heavenly host is repeating over and over and over and over forever? You are number one. Every fiber of your sinfulness says, I am number one. But when the Holy Spirit touches your sinfulness with his grace and power, he changes it. And that's how you can have assurance in this life. When you, when you know by the, your own internal spirit and also by the fruit of your life that it's no longer about you. It's only a supernatural miracle of grace that can take you like that and turn you into something different. And you can look at your life and say, wow, God's grace really has changed me because I know it's no longer about me but him. Every second of life. In one vision, John is given a, 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 a view of what has been, what is, and what is to come. It's an amazing panorama of salvation history. And it reveals that the purpose behind God's creating and redeeming work, which, by the way, has been inaugurated but has yet been consummated, is that all people in all places and times might know and love and adore and worship the Father through the Son in the Spirit. And if that is his purpose behind it all, then every part of your life and all of who you are And all that you do, as those who have begun to experience this great salvation in the already but not yet of life between the ages in these present end times, that all you are proclaim in steady refrain the majesty and beauty and primacy and glory of Christ. And if you have missed that, don't miss it today. Because that's his purpose behind it all that's why you're here that's why you exist that's why you've been redeemed to bring glory to Christ amen amen lord we thank you for the opportunity to worship on another sunday we need we need to worship together because worship is an orienting activity it ori- it rightly corrects the 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 wrong orientation of our lives, where we spend so much time appeasing our appetites, meeting our cravings, seeking our way, pursuing our pursuits, making all of life about ourselves, we need to come back and be reminded that all of reality is not about us, but about you. And by your grace, you've drawn us into that. The sphere of your creating and redeeming life and love. We don't deserve it. In fact, we've done everything within our power to forsake it. And yet even then, while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. You gave yourself away. And the benefits of that sacrifice are still available today. So I pray that every person in here this morning would receive you. Would turn and behold the lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne, the, the lamb standing slaughtered, the one who occupies the center stage of heaven, that all of history revolves around, all of God's plans and purposes revolve around. I pray that we would all see you, Jesus, and we would receive you today as Savior and Lord of our lives. Lord, may it be true for someone here today. Someone. May their lives be transformed by the truth of your word and the grace that you offer. Lord, be glorified by it and through it and through all of our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.